Welcome to the 32nd reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 3, Chapter 19. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider praying and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Chapter 19 of Christian Liberty. There are 16 sections. Section 1. We are now to treat of Christian liberty the explanation of which certainly ought not to be omitted by anyone proposing to give a compendious summary of gospel doctrine. For it is a matter of primary necessity, one without the knowledge of which the conscience can scarcely attempt anything without hesitation, and many must demur and fluctuate, and in all proceed with fickleness and trepidation. In particular, it forms a proper appendix to justification, and is of no little service in understanding its force. Nay, those who seriously fear God will hence perceive the incomparable advantages of a doctrine which wicked scoffers are constantly assailing with their jibes. The intoxication of mind under which they labor, leaving their petulance without restraint. This, therefore, seems the proper place for considering the subject. Moreover, though it has already been occasionally adverted to, there was an advantage in deferring the fuller consideration of it till now, for the moment any mention is made of Christian liberty, lust begins to boil, or insane commotions arise, if a speedy restraint is not laid on those licentious spirits, by whom the best things are perverted into the worst. For they either, under pretext of this liberty, shake off all obedience to God, and break out into unbridled licentiousness, or they feel indignant, thinking that all choice, order, and restraint are abolished. What can we do when thus encompassed with straits? Are we to bid adieu to Christian liberty in order that we may cut off all opportunity for such perilous consequences? But as we have said, if the subject be not understood, neither Christ, nor the truth of the gospel, nor the inward peace of the soul is properly known. Our endeavor must rather be, while not suppressing this very necessary part of doctrine, to obviate the absurd objections to which it usually gives rise. Section 2. Christian liberty seems to me to consist of three parts. First, the consciences of believers, while seeking the assurance of their justification before God, must rise above the law and think no more of obtaining justification by it. For while the law, as has already been demonstrated, see above in chapter 17, section 1, lays not one man righteous, we are either excluded from all hope of justification, or we must be loosed from the law, and so loosed as that no account at all shall be taken of works. For he who imagines that in order to obtain justification he must bring any degree of works whatever cannot fix any mode or limit, but makes himself debtor to the whole law. Therefore, laying aside all mention of the law and all idea of works, we must in the matter of justification have recourse to the mercy of God only. Turning away our regard from ourselves, we must look only to Christ. For the question is, not how we may be righteous, but how, though unworthy and unrighteous, we may be regarded as righteous. If consciences would obtain any assurance of this, they must give no place to the law. Still, it cannot be rightly inferred from this that believers have no need of the law. It ceases not to teach, exhort, and urge them to good, although it is not recognized by their consciences before the judgment seat of God. The two things are very different, and should be well and carefully distinguished. The whole lives of Christians ought to be a kind of aspiration after piety, seeing they are called unto holiness. Ephesians 1, verse 4, and 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 5. The office of the law is to excite them to the study of purity and holiness, 
by reminding them of their duty. For when the conscience feels anxious as to how it may have the favor of God as to the answer it could give and the confidence it would feel, if brought to this judgment seat, in such a case the requirements of the law are not to be brought forward, but Christ, who surpasses all the perfection of the law, is alone to be held forth for righteousness. Section 3 on this almost the whole subject of the epistle to the Galatians hinges, for it can be proved from express passages that those are absurd interpreters who teach that Paul there contends only for freedom from ceremonies. Of such passages are the following, quote, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, unquote. Quote, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. Unquote. Galatians 3, verse 13, and verses 1 through 4. These words certainly refer to something of a higher order than freedom from ceremonies. I confess indeed that Paul there treats of ceremonies because he was contending with false apostles who were plotting to bring back into the Christian church those ancient shadows of the law which were abolished by the advent of Christ. But in discussing this question it was necessary to introduce higher matters on which the whole controversy turns. First, because the brightness of the gospel was obscured by those Jewish shadows, he shows that in Christ we have a full manifestation of all those things which were typified by Mosaic ceremonies. Secondly, as those impostors instilled into the people the most pernicious opinion that this obedience was sufficient to merit the grace of God, he insists very strongly that believers shall not imagine that they can obtain justification before God by any works, far less by those paltry observances. At the same time, he shows that by the cross of Christ they are free from the condemnation of the law, to which otherwise all men are exposed, so that in Christ alone they can rest in full security. This argument is pertinent to the present subject, Galatians 4, verse 5 and 21, etc. Lastly, he asserts the right of believers to liberty of conscience, a liberty which may not be restrained without necessity. Section 4. Another point which depends on the former is that consciences obey the law not as if compelled by legal necessity, but, being free from the yoke of the law itself, voluntarily obey the will of God. Being constantly in terror so long as they are under the dominion of the law, they are never disposed promptly to obey God unless they have previously obtained this liberty. Our meaning shall be explained more briefly and clearly by an example. The command of the law is, quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might, unquote. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. To accomplish this, the soul must previously be divested of every other thought and feeling, the heart purified from all its desires, all its powers collected and united on this one object. Those who, in comparison of others, have made much progress in the way of the Lord, are still very far from this goal. For although they love God in their mind and with a sincere affection of heart, yet both are still in a great measure occupied with the lusts of the flesh, by which they are retarded and prevented from proceeding with quickened pace towards God. They indeed make many efforts, but the flesh partly enfeebles their strength and partly binds them to itself. What can they do while they thus feel that there is nothing of which they are less capable than to fulfill the law? They wish, aspire, endeavor but do nothing with the requisite perfection. If they look to the law, they see that every work which they attempt or design is accursed. Nor can anyone deceive himself by inferring that the work is not altogether bad, merely because it is imperfect, and therefore that any good which is in it is still accepted of God. For the law demanding perfect love condemns all imperfection, unless its rigor is mitigated. Let any man therefore consider his work which he wishes to be thought partly good, and he will find that it is a transgression of the law by the very circumstance of its being imperfect. Section 5. See how our works lie under the curse of the law if they are tested by the standard of the law. But how can unhappy souls set themselves with alacrity to a work from which they cannot hope to gain anything in return but cursing? On the other hand, 
If freed from this severe exaction, or rather from the whole rigor of the law, they hear themselves invited by God with paternal lenity. They will cheerfully and alertly obey the call and follow his guidance. In one word, those who are bound by the yoke of the law are like servants who have certain tasks daily assigned them by their masters. Such servants think that naught has been done, and they dare not come into the presence of their masters until the exact amount of labor has been performed. But sons who are treated in a more candid and liberal manner by their parents hesitate not to offer them works that are only begun or half finished, or even with something faulty in them, trusting that their obedience and readiness of mind will be accepted, although the performance be less exact than was wished. Such should be our feelings, as we certainly trust that our most indulgent parent will approve our services, however small they may be, and however rude and imperfect. Thus he declares to us by the prophet, I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Malachi 3, verse 17, where the word spare evidently means indulgence, or connivance at faults, while at the same time service is remembered. This confidence is necessary in no slight degree, since without it everything should be attempted in vain. For God does not regard any work of ours as done to himself, unless truly done from a desire to serve him. But how can this be amidst these terrors, while we doubt whether God is offended or served by our work? Section 6 This is the reason why the author of the Epistle to the Hebrews ascribes to faith all the good works which the holy patriarchs are said to have performed, and estimates them merely by faith. Hebrews 11, verse 2. In regard to this liberty, there is a remarkable passage in the Epistle to the Romans, where Paul argues, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 6, verse 14. For after he had exhorted believers, quote, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, unquote. They might have objected that they still bore about with them a body full of lust, that sin still dwelt in them. He therefore comforts them by adding that they are freed from the law, as if he had said, Although you feel that sin is not yet extinguished and that righteousness does not plainly live in you, you have no cause for fear and dejection, as if God were always offended because of the remains of sin, since by grace you are freed from the law and your works are not tried by its standard. Let those, however, who infer that they may sin because they are not under the law, understand that they have no right to this liberty, the end of which is to encourage us in well-doing. Section 7. The third part of this liberty is that we are not bound before God to any observance of external things which are in themselves indifferent. Greek word, Alpha, Delta, Iota, Alpha, Phi, Omicron, Zeta, Alpha, Adiaphoso but that we are now at full liberty either to use or omit them. The knowledge of this liberty is very necessary to us. Where it is wanting, our consciences will have no rest. There will be no end of superstition. In the present day, many think us absurd in raising a question as to the free eating of flesh, the free use of dress and holidays, and similar frivolous trifles as they think them. For they are of more importance than is commonly supposed. For when once the conscience is entangled in the net, it enters a long and inextricable labyrinth, from which it is afterwards most difficult to escape. When a man begins to doubt whether it is lawful for him to use linen for sheets, shirts, napkins, and handkerchiefs, he will not long be secure as to hemp, and will at last have doubts as to tow. For he will revolve in his mind whether he cannot sup without napkins or dispense with handkerchiefs. Should he deem a daintier food unlawful, he will afterwards feel uneasy for using loaf bread and common edibles, because he will think that his body might possibly be supported on a still meaner food. If he hesitates as to a more genial wine, he will scarcely drink the worst with a good conscience. At last he will not dare to touch water if more than usually sweet and pure. In fine, he will come to this, that he will deem it criminal to trample on a straw lying in his way. For it is no trivial dispute that is here commenced the point in debate being whether the use of this thing or that is in accordance with the divine will which ought to take precedence of all our acts and counsels. 
Here some must by despair be hurried into an abyss, while others, despising God and casting off his fear, will not be able to make a way for themselves without ruin. When men are involved in such doubts, whatever be the direction in which they turn, everything they see must offend their conscience. Section 8. Quote, I know, unquote, says Paul, quote, that there is nothing unclean of itself, unquote. by unclean meaning unholy. Quote, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Unquote. Romans 14, verse 14. By these words he makes all external things subject to our liberty, provided the nature of that liberty approves itself to our minds as before God. But if any superstitious idea suggests scruples, those things which in their own nature were pure are to us contaminated. Wherefore the apostle adds, quote, Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that which he alloweth, and he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Unquote. Romans 14, verses 22 and 23. When men, amid such difficulties, proceed with greater confidence, securely doing whatever pleases them, do they not in so far revolt from God? Those who are thoroughly impressed with some fear of God, if forced to do many things repugnant to their conscience, are discouraged and filled with dread. All such persons receive none of the gifts of God with thanksgiving, by which alone Paul declares that all things are sanctified for our use. 1 Timothy 4, verse 5 by thanksgiving, I understand that which proceeds from my mind recognizing the kindness and goodness of God in his gifts. For many indeed understand that the blessings which they enjoy are the gifts of God, and praise God in their works. But not being persuaded that these have been given to them, how can they give thanks to God as the giver? In one word we see whether this liberty tends, viz. that we are to use the gifts of God without any scruple of conscience, without any perturbation of mind, for the purpose for which he gave them. In this way our souls may both have peace with him and recognize his liberality towards us. For here are comprehended all ceremonies of free observance, so that while our consciences are not to be laid under the necessity of observing them, we are also to remember that by the kindness of God, the use of them is made subservient to edification. Section 9. It is, however, to be carefully observed that Christian liberty is, in all its parts, a spiritual matter, the whole force of which consists in giving peace to trembling consciences, whether they are anxious and disquieted as to the forgiveness of sins, or as to whether their imperfect works, polluted by the infirmities of the flesh, are pleasing to God, or are perplexed as to the use of things indifferent. It is therefore perversely interpreted by those who use it as a cloak for their lusts that they may licentiously abuse the good gifts of God or who think there is no liberty unless it is used in the presence of men and, accordingly, in using it, pay no regard to their weak brethren. Under this head, the sins of the present age are more numerous. For there is scarcely any one whose means allow him to live sumptuously who does not delight in feasting and dress and the luxurious grandeur of his house, who wishes not to surpass his neighbor in every kind of delicacy and does not plume himself amazingly on his splendor. And all these things are defended under the pretext of Christian liberty. They say they are things indifferent. I admit it, provided they are used indifferently. But when they are too eagerly longed for, when they are proudly boasted of, when they are indulged in luxurious profusion, things which otherwise were in themselves lawful are certainly defiled by these vices. Paul makes an admirable distinction in regard to things indifferent. Quote, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. Unquote. Titus 1 verse 15 for why is a woe pronounced upon the rich who have received their consolation? Luke 6, verse 24, Who are full, who laugh now, who, quote, lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches, unquote. Quote, join house to house, unquote, and, quote, lay field to field, unquote. Quote, and the harp and the vial, the tabret and pipe and wine are in their feasts, unquote. Amos 6, verse 6, and Isaiah 5, verses 8 and 10. Certainly ivory and gold and riches are the good creatures of God, permitted, nay, destined by divine providence for the use of man. Nor was it ever forbidden to laugh, or to be full, or to add new to old and hereditary possessions, or to be delighted with music, or to drink wine. This is true. 
But when the means are supplied to roll and wallow in luxury, to intoxicate the mind and soul with present, and be always hunting after new pleasure, is very far from a legitimate use of the gifts of God. Let them therefore suppress immoderate desire, immoderate profusion, vanity, and arrogance, that they may use the gifts of God purely with a pure conscience. When their mind is brought to this state of soberness, they will be able to regulate the legitimate use. On the other hand, when this moderation is wanting, even plebeian and ordinary delicacies are excessive. For it is a true saying that a haughty mind often dwells in a coarse and homely garb, while true humility lurks under fine linen and purple. Let every one then live in his own station, poorly or moderately, or in splendor. But let all remember that the nourishment which God gives is for life, not luxury, and let them regard it as the law of Christian liberty, to learn with Paul in whatever state they are, quote, therewith to be content, unquote, to know, quote, both how to be abased, unquote, and, quote, how to abound, unquote, quote, to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, unquote. Philippians 4, verse 11. Section 10. Very many also err in this, as if their liberty were not safe and entire without having men to witness it, they use it indiscriminately and imprudently, and in this way often give offense to weak brethren. You may see some in the present day who cannot think they possess their liberty unless they come into possession of it by eating flesh on Friday. Their eating I blame not, but this false notion must be driven from their minds, for they ought to think that their liberty gains nothing new by the sight of men, but is to be enjoyed before God and consists as much in abstaining as in using. If they understand that it is of no consequence in the sight of God whether they eat flesh or eggs, whether they are clothed in red or in black, this is amply sufficient. The conscience to which the benefit of this liberty was due is loosed. Therefore, though they should afterwards during their whole life abstain from flesh and constantly wear one color, they are not less free. Nay, just because they are free, they abstain with a free conscience. But they are most egregiously in paying no regard to the infirmity of their brethren with which it becomes us to bear so as not rashly to give them offense. But it is sometimes also of consequence that we should assert our liberty before men. This I admit, yet must we use great caution in the mode, lest we should cast off the care of the weak whom God has specially committed to us. Section 11. I will here make some observations on offenses, what distinctions are to be made between them, what kind are to be avoided, and what disregarded. This will afterwards enable us to determine what scope there is for our liberty among men. We are pleased with the common division into offense given and offense taken, since it has the plain sanction of Scripture and not improperly expresses what is meant. If from unseasonable levity or wantonness or rashness you do anything out of order or not in its own place by which the weak or unskillful are offended, it may be said that offense has been given by you, since the ground of offense is owing to your fault and in general offense is said to be given in any matter where the person from whom it has proceeded is in fault. Offense is said to be taken when a thing otherwise done, not wickedly or unseasonably, is made an occasion of offense from malevolence or some sinister feeling. For here offense was not given, but sinister interpreters causelessly take offense. By the former kind, the weak only, by the latter, the ill-tempered and pharisaical are offended. Wherefore, we shall call the one the offense of the weak, the other the offense of Pharisees. And we will so temper the use of our liberty as to make it yield to the ignorance of weak brethren, but not to the austerity of Pharisees. What is due to infirmity is fully shown by Paul in many passages. Quote, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. Unquote. Again, quote, Let us not judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way, unquote. And to many others to the same effect in the same place, to which, instead of quoting them here, we refer the reader. The sum is, quote, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification, unquote. Elsewhere he says, quote, Take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak, unquote. Again, quote, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience' sake, unquote. Quote, Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other, unquote. 
Finally, quote, give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, unquote. Also, in another passage, quote, Brethren, ye have been called into liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another, unquote. Romans 14, verse 1 and 13, 15, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, 10, verse 25, 29, and 32, and Galatians 5, verse 13. Thus indeed it is. Our liberty was not given us against our weak neighbors, whom charity enjoins us to serve in all things, but rather that, having peace with God in our minds, we should live peaceably among men. What value is to be set upon the offense of the Pharisees we learn from the words of our Lord, in which he says, quote, Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind, unquote. Matthew 15, verse 14. The disciples had intimated that Pharisees were offended at his words. He answers that they are to be let alone, that their offense is not to be regarded. Section 12. The matter still remains uncertain unless we understand who are the weak and who the Pharisees. For if this distinction is destroyed, I see not how, in regard to offenses, any liberty at all would remain without being constantly in the greatest danger. But Paul seems to me to have marked out most clearly, as well as by example, as by doctrine, how far our liberty in the case of offense is to be modified or maintained. When he adopts Timothy as his companion, he circumcises him. Nothing can induce him to circumcise Titus. Acts 16, verse 3, and Galatians 2, verse 3. The acts are different, but there is no difference in the purpose or intention. In circumcising Timothy, as he was free from all men, he made himself the servant of all. Quote, Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 through 22. We have here the proper modification of liberty, when in all things indifferent it can be restrained with some advantage. What he had in view in firmly resisting the circumcision of Titus, he himself testifies when he thus writes. Quote, but neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Unquote. Galatians 2, verses 3 through 5. We here see the necessity of vindicating our liberty when, by the unjust exactions of false apostles, it is brought into danger with weak consciences. In all cases, we must study charity and look to the edification of our neighbor. Quote, all things are lawful for me, unquote, says he, quote, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not, that no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth, unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 and 24. There is nothing plainer than this rule, that we are to use our liberty if it tends to the edification of our neighbor, but if inexpedient for our neighbor, we are to abstain from it. There are some who pretend to imitate this prudence of Paul by abstinence from liberty, while there is nothing for which they less employ it than for purposes of charity. Consulting their own ease, they would have all mention of liberty buried, though it is not less for the interests of our neighbor to use liberty for their good and edification than to modify it occasionally for their advantage. It is the part of a pious man to think that the free power conceded to him in external things is to make him the readier in all offices of charity. Section 13. Whatever I have said about avoiding offenses, I wish to be referred to things indifferent. Things which are necessary to be done cannot be omitted from any fear of offense. For as our liberty is to be made subservient to charity, so charity must in its turn be subordinate to purity of faith. Here too regard must be had to charity, but it must go as far as the altar. That is, we must not offend God for the sake of our neighbor. We approve not of the intemperance of those who do everything tumultuously, and would rather burst through every restraint at once than proceed step by step. 
But neither are those to be listened to who, while they take the lead in a thousand forms of impiety, pretend that they act thus to avoid giving offense to their neighbor, as if in the meantime they did not train the consciences of their neighbors to evil, especially when they always stick in the same mire without any hope of escape. When a neighbor is to be instructed, whether by doctrine or by example, then smooth-tongued men say that he is to be fed with milk, while they are instilling into him the worst and most pernicious opinions. Paul says to the Corinthians, quote, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, unquote. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2. But had there then been a popish mass among them, would he have sacrificed as one of the modes of giving them milk? By no means. Milk is not poison. It is false then to say they nourish those whom, under a semblance of soothing, they cruelly murder. But granting that such dissimulation may be used for a time, how long are they to make their pupils drink that kind of milk? If they never grow up so as to be able to bear at least some gentle food, it is certain that they have never been reared on milk. Two reasons prevent me from now entering farther into contest with these people. First, their follies are scarcely worthy of refutation, saying all men of sense must nauseate them. And, secondly, having already amply refuted them in special treatises, I am unwilling to do it over again. Let my readers only bear in mind, first, that whatever be the offenses by which Satan and the world attempt to lead us away from the law of God, we must nevertheless strenuously proceed in the course which he prescribes. And, secondly, that whatever dangers impend, we are not at liberty to deviate one nail's breadth from the command of God, that on no pretext is it lawful to attempt anything but what he permits. Section 14. Since by means of this privilege of liberty which we have described, believers have derived authority from Christ not to entangle themselves by the observance of things in which he wished them to be free, we conclude that their consciences are exempted from all human authority. For it were unbecoming that the gratitude due to Christ for his liberal gift should perish, or that the consciences of believers should derive no benefit from it. We must not regard it as a trivial matter when we see how much it cost our Savior, being purchased not with silver or gold, but with his own blood. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. So that Paul hesitates not to say that Christ has died in vain if we place our souls under subjection to men. Galatians 5, verses 1 and 4, and 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23. Several chapters of the epistle to the Galatians are wholly occupied with showing that Christ is obscured, or rather extinguished to us, unless our consciences maintain their liberty, from which they have certainly fallen if they can be bound with the chains of laws and constitutions at the pleasure of men. But as the knowledge of this subject is of the greatest importance, so it demands a longer and clearer exposition. For the moment, the abolition of human constitutions is mentioned. The greatest disturbances are excited, partly by the seditious and partly by calumniators, as if obedience of every kind were at the same time abolished and overthrown. Section 15. Therefore, lest this prove a stumbling block to any, let us observe that in man government is twofold. The one spiritual, by which the conscience is trained to piety and divine worship. The other, civil by which the individual is instructed in those duties which, as men and citizens, we are bound to perform. See Book 4, Chapter 10, Sections 3-6. through 6. To these two forms are commonly given the not inappropriate names of spiritual and temporal jurisdiction, intimating that the former species has reference to the life of the soul, while the latter relates to matters of the present life, not only to food and clothing, but to the enacting of laws which require a man to live among his fellows purely, honorably, and modestly. The former has its seat within the soul. The latter only regulates the external conduct. We may call the one the spiritual, the other the civil kingdom. Now these two, as we have divided them, are always to be viewed apart from each other. When the one is considered, we should call off our minds and not allow them to think of the other. For there exists in man a kind of two worlds over which different kings and different laws can preside. By attending to this distinction, we will not erroneously transfer the doctrine of the gospel concerning spiritual liberty to civil order, as if in regard to external government, Christians were less subject to human laws because their consciences are unbound before God, as if they were exempted from all carnal service because, in regard to the spirit, they are free. Again, because even in those constitutions which seem to relate to the spiritual kingdom there may be some delusion, it is necessary to distinguish between those which are to be held legitimate as being agreeable to the word of God, and those, on the other hand, which ought to have no place among the pious. 
who shall elsewhere have an opportunity of speaking of civil government. See Book 4, Chapter 20. For the present also I defer speaking of ecclesiastical laws, because that subject will be more fully discussed in the fourth book when we come to treat of the power of the church. We would thus conclude the present discussion. The question, as I have said, though not very obscure or perplexing in itself, occasions difficulty to many, because they do not distinguish with sufficient accuracy between what is called the external forum and the forum of conscience. What increases the difficulty is that Paul commands us to obey the magistrate, quote, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake, unquote. Romans 13, verses 1 and 5. Whence it follows that civil laws also bind the conscience. Were this so, then what we said a little ago, and are still to say of spiritual government, would fall. To solve this difficulty, the first thing of importance, is to understand what is meant by conscience. The definition must be sought in the etymology of the word. For as men, when they apprehend the knowledge of things by the mind and intellect, are said to know, and hence arises the term knowledge or science, so, when they have a sense of the divine justice added as a witness which allows them not to conceal their sins, but drags them forward as culprits to the bar of God, that sense is called conscience. For it stands, as it were, between God and man, not suffering man to suppress what he knows in himself, but following him on even to conviction. It is this that Paul means when he says, quote, Their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Unquote. Romans 2, verse 15. Simple knowledge may exist in man, as it were shut up. Therefore this sense, which sits man before the bar of God, is set over him as a kind of sentinel to observe and spy out all his secrets, that nothing may remain buried in darkness. Hence the ancient proverb, Conscience is a thousand witnesses. For the same reason, Peter also employs the expression, quote, The answer of a good conscience, unquote, 1 Peter 3, verse 21, for tranquility of mind. When persuaded of the grace of Christ, we boldly present ourselves before God. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews says that we have, quote, no more conscience of sins, unquote, Hebrews 10, verse 2, that we are held as freed or acquitted, so that sin no longer accuses us. Section 16. Wherefore, as works have respect to men, so conscience bears reference to God, a good conscience being nothing else than inward integrity of heart. In this sense, Paul says that, quote, The end of the commandment is charity, out of the pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, unquote. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. He afterwards, in the same chapter, shows how much it differs from intellect when he speaks of, quote, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away, have made shipwreck, unquote. 1 Timothy 1, verse 19. For by these words he intimates that it is a lively inclination to serve God, a sincere desire to live in piety and holiness. Sometimes, indeed, it is even extended to men, as when Paul testifies, quote, Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men, unquote. Acts 24, verse 16. He speaks thus, because the fruits of a good conscience go forth and reach even to men. But as I have said, properly speaking, it refers to God only. Hence a law is said to bind the conscience, because it simply binds the individual without looking at men or taking any account of them. For example, God not only commands us to keep our mind chaste and pure from lust, but prohibits all external lasciviousness or obscenity of language. My conscience is subjected to the observance of this law, though there were not another man in the world, and he who violates it sins not only by setting a bad example to his brethren, but stands convicted in his conscience before God. The same rule does not hold in things indifferent. We ought to abstain from everything that produces offense, but with a free conscience. Thus Paul, speaking of meat consecrated to idols, says, quote, If any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake. Unquote. Quote, conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 28 and 29. A believer, after being previously admonished, would sin were he still to eat meat so offered. But though abstinence on his part is necessary in respect of a brother, as it is prescribed by God, still he ceases not to retain liberty of conscience. We see how the law, while binding the external act, leaves the conscience unbound. Chapter 20 of Prayer, a Perpetual Exercise of Faith, the Daily Benefits Derived from It 
There are 52 sections. Section 1. From the previous part of the work, we clearly see how completely destitute man is of all good work, how devoid of every means of procuring his own salvation. Hence, if he would obtain succor in his necessity, he must go beyond himself and procure it in some other quarter. It has farther been shown that the Lord kindly and spontaneously manifests himself in Christ, in whom he offers all happiness for our misery, all abundance for our want, opening up the treasures of heaven to us, so that we may turn with full faith to his beloved Son, depend upon him with full expectation, rest in him, and cleave to him with full hope. This indeed is that secret and hidden philosophy which cannot be learned by syllogisms, a philosophy thoroughly understood by those whose eyes God has so opened as to see light in his light. But after we have learned by faith to know that whatever is necessary for us or defective in us is supplied in God and in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom it hath pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, that we may thence draw as from an inexhaustible fountain, it remains for us to seek and in prayer implore of him what we have learned to be in him. To know God as the sovereign disposer of all good, inviting us to present our requests, and yet not to approach or ask of him, were so far from availing us, that it were just as if one told of a treasure were to allow it to remain buried in the ground. Hence the apostle, to show that a faith unaccompanied with prayer to God cannot be genuine, states this to be the order. As faith springs from the gospel, so by faith our hearts are framed to call upon the name of God. Romans 10 verse 14. And this is the very thing which he had expressed some time before, viz., that the spirit of adoption which seals the testimony of the gospel on our hearts gives us courage to make our requests known unto God, calls forth groanings which cannot be uttered, and enables us to cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8, verse 26. This last point, as we have hitherto only touched upon it slightly in passing, must now be treated more fully. Section 2. To prayer, then, are we indebted for penetrating to those riches which are treasured up for us with our Heavenly Father. For there is a kind of intercourse between God and men, by which, having entered the upper sanctuary, they appear before him and appeal to his promises, that when necessity requires they may learn by experience that what they believed merely on the authority of his word was not in vain. Accordingly, we see that nothing is set before us as an object of expectation from the Lord, which we are not enjoined to ask of him in prayer. So true it is that prayer digs up those treasures which the gospel of our Lord discovers to the eye of faith. The necessity and utility of this exercise of prayer no words can sufficiently express. Assuredly, it is not without cause our Heavenly Father declares that our only safety is in calling upon His name, since by it we invoke the presence of His providence to watch over our interests, of His power to sustain us when weak and almost fainting, of His goodness to receive us into favor, though miserably loaded with sin. In fine, call upon Him to manifest Himself to us and all His perfections. Hence, admirable peace and tranquility are given to our consciences. For the straits by which we were pressed being laid before the Lord, we rest fully satisfied with the assurance that none of our evils are unknown to Him, and that He is both able and willing to make the best provision for us. Section 3. But someone will say, Does He not know without a monitor both what our difficulties are, and what is meet for our interests, so that it seems in some measure superfluous to solicit Him by our prayers, as if He were winking, or even sleeping, until aroused by the sound of our voice? Those who argue thus attend not to the end for which the Lord taught us to pray. It was not so much for his sake as for ours. He wills indeed, as is just, that due honor be paid him by acknowledging that all which men desire or feel to be useful and pray to obtain is derived from him. But even the benefit of the homage which we thus pay him redounds to ourselves. Hence the holy patriarchs, the more confidently they proclaimed the mercies of God to themselves and others, felt the stronger incitement to prayer. It will be sufficient to refer to the example of Elijah, who, being assured of the purpose of God, had good ground for the promise of rain which he gives to Ahab, and yet prays anxiously upon his knees and sends his servants seven times to inquire. 1 Kings 18 verse 42 not that he discredits the oracle, but because he knows it to be his duty to lay his desires before God, lest his faith should become drowsy or torpid. Wherefore, although it is true that while we are listless or insensible to our wretchedness, he wakes and watches for us and sometimes even assists us unasked. 
It is very much for our interest to be constantly supplicating him. First, that our heart may always be inflamed with a serious and ardent desire of seeking, loving, and serving him, while we accustom ourselves to have recourse to him as a sacred anchor in every necessity. Secondly, that no desire, no longing whatever, of which we are ashamed to make him the witness, may enter our minds while we learn to place all our wishes in his sight, and thus pour out our heart before him. And lastly, that we may be prepared to receive all his benefits with true gratitude and thanksgiving, while our prayers remind us that they proceed from his hand. Moreover, having obtained what we asked, being persuaded that he has answered our prayers, we are led to long more earnestly for his favor, and at the same time have greater pleasure in welcoming the blessings which we perceive to have been obtained by our prayers. Lastly, use and experience confirm the thought of his providence in our minds in a manner adapted to our weakness, when we understand that he not only promises that he will never fail us and spontaneously gives us access to approach him in every time of need, but has his hand always stretched out to assist his people, not amusing them with words, but proving himself to be a present aid. For these reasons, though our most merciful Father never slumbers nor sleeps, he very often seems to do so, that thus he may exercise us when we might otherwise be listless and slothful, in asking, entreating, and earnestly beseeching him to our great good. It is very absurd, therefore, to dissuade men from prayer by pretending that divine providence, which is always watching over the government of the universe, is in vain importuned by our supplications, when, on the contrary, the Lord himself declares that he is, quote, nigh unto all that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth, unquote. Psalm 145, verse 18. No better is the frivolous allegation of others, that it is superfluous to pray for things which the Lord is ready of his own accord to bestow, since it is his pleasure that those very things which flow from his spontaneous liberality should be acknowledged as conceded to our prayers. This is testified by that memorable sentence of the psalm, to which many others correspond, quote, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry, unquote. Psalm 34, verse 15. This passage, while extolling the care which divine providence spontaneously exercises over the safety of believers, omits not the exercise of faith by which the mind is aroused from sloth. The eyes of God are awake to assist the blind in their necessity, but he is likewise pleased to listen to our groans, that he may give us the better proof of his love. And thus both things are true, quote, He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep, unquote. Psalm 121, verse 4. And yet, whenever he sees us dumb and torpid, he withdraws as if he had forgotten us. Section 4. Let the first rule of right prayer then be to have our heart and mind framed as becomes those who are entering into converse with God. This we shall accomplish in regard to the mind if, laying aside carnal thoughts and cares which might interfere with the direct and pure contemplation of God, it not only be wholly intent on prayer, but also, as far as possible, be born and raised above itself. I do not here insist on a mind so disengaged as to feel none of the gnawings of anxiety. On the contrary, it is by much anxiety that the fervor of prayer is inflamed. Thus we see that the holy servants of God betray great anguish, not to say solicitude, when they cause the voice of complaint to ascend to the Lord from the deep abyss and the jaws of death. What I say is that all foreign and extraneous cares must be dispelled by which the mind might be driven to and fro in vague suspense, be drawn down from heaven and kept groveling on the earth. When I say it must be raised above itself, I mean that it must not bring into the presence of God any of those things which our blind and stupid reason is wont to devise, nor keep itself confined within the little measure of its own vanity, but rise to a purity worthy of God. Section 5. Both things are especially worthy of notice. First, let everyone in professing to pray turn thither all his thoughts and feelings, and be not, as is usual, distracted by wandering thoughts because nothing is more contrary to the reverence due to God than that levity which bespeaks a mind too much given to license and devoid of fear. In this matter we ought to labor the more earnestly, the more difficult we experience it to be. For no man is so intent on prayer as not to feel many thoughts creeping in, and either breaking off the tenor of his prayer or retarding it by some turning or digression. Here let us consider how unbecoming it is when God admits us to familiar intercourse to abuse his great condescension by mingling things sacred and profane, reverence for him not keeping our minds under restraint. 
but just as if in prayer we were conversing with one like ourselves, forgetting him, and allowing our thoughts to run to and fro. Let us know then that none duly prepare themselves for prayer, but those who are so impressed with the majesty of God that they engage in it free from all earthly cares and affections. The ceremony of lifting up our hands in prayer is designed to remind us that we are far removed from God unless our thoughts rise upward. As it is said in the psalm, quote, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul, unquote. Psalm 25, verse 1. And Scripture repeatedly uses the expression to raise our prayer, meaning that those who would be heard by God must not grovel in the mire. The sum is that the more liberally God deals with us, condescendingly inviting us to disburden our cares into his bosom, the less excusable we are if this admirable and incomparable blessing does not in our estimation outweigh all other things and win our affection that prayer may seriously engage our every thought and feeling. This cannot be unless our mind, strenuously exerting itself against all impediments, rise upward. Our second proposition was that we are to ask only insofar as God permits. For though he bids us pour out our hearts, Psalm 62 verse 8, he does not indiscriminately give loose reins to foolish and depraved affections. And when he promises that he will grant believers their wish, his indulgence does not proceed so far as to submit to their caprice. In both matters, grievous delinquencies are everywhere committed. For not only do many without modesty, without reverence, presume to invoke God concerning their frivolities, but impudently bring forward their dreams, whatever they may be, before the tribunal of God. Such is the folly or stupidity under which they labor, that they have the hardihood to obtrude upon God desires so vile that they would blush exceedingly to impart them to their fellow men. Profane writers have derided and even expressed their detestation of this presumption, and yet the vice has always prevailed. Hence, as the ambitious adopted Jupiter as their patron, the avaricious Mercury, the literary aspirants Apollo and Minerva, the warlike Mars, the licentious Venus, so in the present day, as I lately observed, men in prayer give greater license to their unlawful desires than if they were telling jocular tales among their equals. God does not suffer his condescension to be thus mocked, but vindicating his own right places our wishes under the restraint of his authority. We must therefore attend to the observation of John, quote, This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us, unquote. 1 John 5, verse 14. But as our faculties are far from being able to attain to such high perfection, we must seek for some means to assist them. As the eye of our mind should be intent upon God, so the affection of our heart ought to follow in the same course. But both fall far beneath this, or rather they faint and fail and are carried in a contrary direction. To assist this weakness, God gives us the guidance of the Spirit in our prayers to dictate what is right and regulate our affections. For saying, quote, we know not what we should pray for as we ought, unquote, quote, the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, unquote, Romans 8, verse 26. Not that he actually prays or groans, but he excites in us sighs and wishes and confidence which our natural powers are not at all able to conceive. Nor is it without cause Paul gives the name of groanings which cannot be uttered to the prayers which believers send forth under the guidance of the Spirit. For those who are truly exercised in prayer are not unaware that blind anxieties so restrain and perplex them that they can scarcely find what it becomes them to utter. Nay, in attempting to lisp, they halt and hesitate. Hence it appears that to pray aright is a special gift. We do not speak thus in indulgence to our sloth, as if we were to leave the office of prayer to the Holy Spirit and give way to that carelessness to which we are too prone. Thus we sometimes hear the impious expression that we are to wait in suspense until he take possession of our minds while otherwise occupied. Our meaning is that, weary of our own heartlessness and sloth, we are to long for the aid of the Spirit. Nor indeed does Paul, when he enjoins us to pray in the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 15, cease to exhort us to vigilance, intimating that while the inspiration of the Spirit is effectual to the formation of prayer, it by no means impedes or retards our own endeavors, since in this matter God is pleased to try how efficiently faith influences our hearts. Section 6. Another rule of prayer is that in asking, we must always truly feel our wants, and seriously considering that we need all the things that we ask, accompany the prayer with a sincere, nay, ardent desire of obtaining them. 
Many repeat prayers in a perfunctory manner from a set form as if they were performing a task to God. And though they confess that this is a necessary remedy for the evils of their condition because it were fatal to be left without the divine aid which they implore, it still appears that they perform the duty from custom because their minds are meanwhile cold and they ponder not what they ask. A general and confused feeling of their necessity leads them to pray, but it does not make them solicitous as in a matter of present consequence that they may obtain the supply of their need. Moreover, can we suppose anything more hateful or even more execrable to God than this fiction of asking the pardon of sins, while he who asks at the very time either thinks that he is not a sinner or at least is not thinking that he is a sinner? In other words, a fiction by which God is plainly held in derision. But mankind, as I have lately said, are full of depravity, so that in the way of perfunctory service they often ask many things of God which they think come to them without his beneficence, or from some other quarter, or are already certainly in their possession. There is another fault which seems less heinous, but is not to be tolerated. Some murmur out prayers without meditation, their only principle being that God is to be propitiated by prayer. Believers ought to be specially on their guard never to appear in the presence of God without the intention of presenting a request unless they are under some serious impression and are, at the same time, desirous to obtain it. Nay, although in these things which we ask only for the glory of God, we seem not at first sight to consult for our necessity, yet we ought not to ask with less fervor and vehemency of desire. For instance, when we pray that his name be hallowed, that hallowing must, so to speak, be earnestly hungered and thirsted after. Section 7. If it is objected that the necessity which urges us to pray is not always equal, I admit it. And this distinction is profitably taught us by James. Quote, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Unquote. James 5, verse 13. Therefore, common sense itself dictates that as we are too sluggish, we must be stimulated by God to pray earnestly whenever the occasion requires. This David calls a time when God, quote, may be found, unquote, a seasonable time. Because, as he declares in several other passages, that the more hardly grievances, annoyances, fears, and other kinds of trial press us, the freer is our access to God as if he were inviting us to himself. Still not less true is the injunction of Paul to pray, quote, always, unquote, Ephesians 6, verse 18. Because, however prosperously, according to our view, things proceed, and however we may be surrounded on all sides with grounds of joy, there is not an instant of time during which our want does not exhort us to prayer. A man abounds in wheat and wine, but as he cannot enjoy a morsel of bread unless by the continual bounty of God, his granaries or cellars will not prevent him from asking for daily bread. Then, if we consider how many dangers impend every moment, fear itself will teach us that no time ought to be without prayer. This, however, may be better known in spiritual matters. For when will the many sins of which we are conscious allow us to sit secure without suppliantly entreating freedom from guilt and punishment? When will temptation give us a truce, making it unnecessary to hasten for help? Moreover, zeal for the kingdom and glory of God ought not to seize us by starts, but urge us without intermission, so that every time should appear seasonable. It is not without cause, therefore, that assiduity in prayer is so often enjoined. I am not now speaking of perseverance, which shall afterwards be considered. But Scripture, by reminding us of the necessity of constant prayer, charges us with sloth because we feel not how much we stand in need of this care and assiduity. By this rule, hypocrisy and the device of lying to God are restrained, nay, altogether banished from prayer. God promises that he will be near to those who call upon him in truth, and declares that those who seek him with their whole heart will find him. Those, therefore, who delight in their own pollution cannot surely aspire to him. One of the requisites of legitimate prayer is repentance. Hence the common declaration of Scripture that God does not listen to the wicked, that their prayers as well as their sacrifices are an abomination to him. For it is right that those who seal up their hearts should find the ears of God closed against them, that those who by their hard-heartedness provoke his severity should find him inflexible. In Isaiah he thus threatens, quote, When ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood, unquote. Isaiah 1, verse 15. In like manner in Jeremiah, quote, Though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Unquote. Jeremiah 11, verses 7, 8, and 11. 
because he regards it as the highest insult for the wicked to boast of his covenant while profaning his sacred name by their whole lives. Hence he complains in Isaiah, quote, This people draw near to me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, unquote. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Indeed, he does not confine this to prayers alone, but declares that he abominates pretense in every part of his service. Hence the words of James, quote, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts, unquote. James 4, verse 3. It is true indeed, as we shall again see in a little, that the pious and the prayers which they utter trust not to their own worth, still the admonition of John is not superfluous. Quote, Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments. Unquote. 1 John 3, verse 22. An evil conscience shuts the door against us. Hence it follows that none but the sincere worshippers of God pray aright or are listened to. Let every one, therefore, who prepares to pray, feel dissatisfied with what is wrong in his condition, and assume, which he cannot do without repentance, the character and feelings of a poor suppliant. Section 8. The third rule to be added is that he who comes into the presence of God to pray must divest himself of all vainglorious thoughts, lay aside all idea of worth, in short, discard all self-confidence, humbly giving God the whole glory, lest by arrogating anything however little to himself, vain pride cause him to turn away his face. Of this submission which casts down all haughtiness, we have numerous examples in the servants of God. The holier they are, the more humbly they prostrate themselves when they come into the presence of the Lord. Thus Daniel, on whom the Lord himself bestowed such high commendation, says, quote, We do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name." Unquote. This he does not indirectly in the usual manner, as if he were one of the individuals in a crowd. He rather confesses his guilt apart, and as a suppliant betaking himself to the asylum of pardon, he distinctly declares that he was confessing his own sin and the sin of his people Israel. Daniel 9, verses 18-20 David also sets us an example of this humility. Quote, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Unquote. Psalm 143, verse 2. In like manner Isaiah prays, quote, Behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou art our potter. And we all are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. Unquote. Isaiah 64, verses 5-9 through nine. You see how they put no confidence in anything but this. Considering that they are the Lord's, they despair not of being the objects of his care. In the same way, Jeremiah says, quote, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do thou it for thy name's sake. Unquote. Jeremiah 14, verse 7. For it was most truly and piously written by the uncertain author, whoever he may have been, that wrote the book which is attributed to the prophet Baruch. Quote, but the soul that is greatly vexed, which goeth stooping and feeble, and the eyes that fail, and the hungry soul, will give thee praise and righteousness, O Lord. Therefore we do not make our humble supplication before thee, O Lord our God, for the righteousness of our fathers and of our kings. Unquote. Quote, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy, for thou art merciful, and have pity upon us, because we have sinned before thee. Unquote. Baruch 2, verses 18 and 19, and 3, verse 2. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450 3730 
by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 three states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.